Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I am so thrilled and excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Notisha Masakoy. She is fantastic and has so many different titles. Uh, she recently defended successfully her PhD in social justice education, focusing on queer African refugees in Canada. She is a consultant, an activist, an LGBTQ global health leader, and former executive director of Women's Health, Women's Hands Community Health Center for 16 years. Welcome, Notisha. Thank you, Dr. Logie. It's so great having you here today. I actually think... Working with you in 2006 was my first job as a research assistant when I started my PhD, which means I've known you for 14 years. Wow, it was. And I still remember the day you arrived in our organization. And I thought, what is this young woman going to do in terms of working with the African Caribbean community? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> <laughs> but you turned out to be one of our most... Uh, fantastic allies and it's been a pleasure working with you all all of these years oh thank you i really i mean i think for anybody who doesn't know the groundbreaking work that women's health and women's hands community health center does i will also have a link up to the this episode and really forging the way globally as a health center for women of color I want to know, I know you've just recently acquired your doctorate. I don't know if that changes your elevator pitch, but if I was to see you in an elevator and be like, hey, Dr. Moskoy, what, what kind of work do you do? What, what are you passionate about with regards to your work around stigma, racism? How would you describe that? I would describe my work or myself as a global advocate for the access to healthcare for racialized communities. I think that uh, most of my work has focused on health equity and looking at health disparities, particularly health disparities that impact black women uh, in the North. But I look at that issue globally in terms of the inability to access primary healthcare has led to health disparities for racialized populations, particularly black women. That's amazing. I appreciate that you focus on black women who might often not be focused on either in people focusing on women's health or people focusing on, on black people's health. You really have this expertise in black women and then also how your work spans the global north and the global south is really, I think, unique and important and needed. So if I was to show up at your house, which I love your house, 
And I wish I could show up there right now if there wasn't COVID. Me too, me too. <laughs> um, and then give your daughter some more stamps to stamp your walls with. So we were t- <laughs> a backstory. I thought in my brilliance, uh, giving a little girl a stamp with fairies on it was a good idea. But apparently it's not a good idea if you don't want your walls stamped with fairies. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't really know if it really matches everyone's decor. Anyways, if I was to show up at your house with a time machine and say, when did you first start thinking about um, these issues around stigma and race? Um, where Take me back to that time and place. Where would we go? Absolutely. I would end up being uh, in Grand Falls, Newfoundland in 1970. And that's when my family arrived as immigrants from Sierra Leone to Canada. And we were the first black family to arrive uh, in central Newfoundland or to live in central Newfoundland. And if you understand uh, the population, the black population of Canada at that time, there were only 30,000 black people in the entire country. And at that time, there were 30 black people in Newfoundland when I look back at the statistics. Wow. So I absolutely understand what it means to be stigmatized and to be racialized and to be highly visible in a very white society. Everything that I did as a child in that community, I was the first black person to do it or my family was the first black person. But as the child, I was the first black person to go to the school. I was the first black child to go to the playground. I was the first black child to do everything. That has impacted my understanding of race and racism, particularly in in a Canadian context. So uh, that's where the time machine would take me. I have never been to Newfoundland. Does your family still live there? Do you have any connections? Like you now in Toronto. So I, I know you moved away. Uh, no, my family actually moved before I did. They moved when I was in university in Newfoundland. Uh, they moved to Ontario. And uh, I was 17 when I came to Ontario. I transferred universities. Uh, so, no, we we were our only family that were in Newfoundland. And we moved shortly after each other to Ontario and... I have been back once for a conference, but no, I don't have any ties to Newfoundland at the present time. I can imagine it might have been very isolating, your experience. It was, but it's, uh, you know, I have to speak highly of Newfoundland people in terms of their culture and, and having experienced a very different part of Canada. But what I did get to experience is how anti-Black racism plays out because it played out on myself and my family solely so mm. we could see the, the the difference in the experience and so you know my experience in Newfoundland from 5 to 17 was was one of yes isolation one of being highly stigmatized and visible as as a black person um but then also I, I think I it gave me a rich understanding of parts of Canadian culture that often, interesting enough, are stigmatized themselves in terms of how we treat Newfoundlanders and and how they're perceived. So it it was an interesting upbringing for sure. Not something I thought I was actually going to talk about today, Carmen. (laughs) (laughs) I like the time exercise. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) So 
Well, I'm trying to get the listeners. This sounds like psychotherapy now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to get the listeners to get to know you and where you're coming from um, when you're talking and thinking about different kinds of stigma. The other thing I'll say is I'm also learning about you. I, I, I must have known you're from Newfoundland, at least in Canada, but I, I don't remember that. Do you know Newfoundland is the one province I have never been to? It's absolutely beautiful. There's very, it's very interesting in terms of how immigration played out in, in that respect. And Newfoundland, because of its isolation from the rest of Canada, it's the last to join Confederation, had most definitely a lack of um, highly educated service providers because Canadians from other parts of the country were not going there to work. And Mm -hmm. so in the late 60s and 70s, they recruited uh, all of these professionals from uh, Africa, the Caribbean, from South Asian countries to come in and work. And in exchange for doing that for a certain number of years, your qualifications were accepted. Uh, you were settled very well and citizenship came very easily and all of those things that are a struggle, I think, uh, when you, you immigrate to Ontario and other provinces. So. Mm-hmm. You know, there are lots of benefits for for going there at that time, but the isolation, I I, I would have to say, was was a, a interesting trade off or something that you had to contend with. And the weather, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. So part of the reason I want to go is so I can say that I've been to every territory and province because I've been everywhere except for Newfoundland in Canada. The other one is um, I've heard that there's good motorcycling there. So I'll let you know when I go and and share stories. (laughs) So let's bring you to today. So a lot of your work in your um, PhD work looked at queer African refugees and your work in Canada and globally has really looked at health equity for racialized women. If someone's asking you, so what's a big deal who cares? Is this really in a, an important global issue? Uh, what would you say? How do you describe why is this something we should all care about? For me, it's, uh, it's obvious, but I, I understand that sometimes we have to break things down for people. One of the things that is very glaring in, in our system, particularly in the Canadian health system, is that it's supposed to be a universal health system, meaning that everyone has equal access to health care. So one would assume that if everyone has equal access to health care, that the health outcomes for everyone in the population should be equal, just as equal. And that's not the case. And my years of working at Women's Health and Women's Hands and in primary health care for 32 years, really, what I kept seeing was that our health outcomes, particularly for black women, were drastically different. Um, mm-hmm. And that... Our death rates were very premature in terms of looking at the average rate of death and also looking at issues of HIV, which I've done enormous amounts of of my work on and looking at the high rates of HIV, particularly for black women in not only in Canada, but globally. And why are our rates so high? Why are our rates so high for almost all cancers? Why are Mm -hmm. our rates so high for all stress-related illnesses such as diabetes, hypertension and heart disease? And I asked that question very specifically in a Canadian context where we should have equal access to health care and therefore better or as equal health outcomes. The other issue that pops up is in terms of immigration. And 
based on the way that our immigration system is set up, the health of the person immigrating to Canada has to be optimal. It's mm. part of the application process. Your health screening is part of what makes you a successful immigrant. And immigrants to Canada have higher or better health outcomes than the average Canadian. But within five years of being in Canada, that good health deteriorates to less mm. than the average Canadian. So those are some of the questions that, you know, I really wanted to take a look at and understand why. And I was also very concerned that our healthcare system was not interested in understanding why. Mm -hmm. And we do not collect race-based data in Canada, uh, which also leads me to think, what, why do you not care about these poor health outcomes for this part of the population? So, you know, those are some of the things that I'm very interested in and wanted to have answers to and wish that other people were as concerned about it as myself and yourself and the many mm -hmm. people who are doing this kind of work. At Women's Health and Women's Hands in 1999, we realized we had no answers to what we were seeing in a health organization that prioritized racialized women. We had no research. We had no evidence from a scientific perspective. We had anecdotal information. Mm -hmm. And in 1999, we decided to start doing research ourselves. And you talked about coming to be a research assistant at Women's Health and Women's Hands. I think you're one of our first. But we had to start doing this research ourselves and looking for researchers who would be empathetic to the issues that we were seeing as healthcare providers and supporting us in, in that research. And that's, that's how we developed a very robust research program at a community health center. It's the only one of its kind in Canada. I think people are catching on now. And, you know, with COVID and when we start yes. looking at the states and the outcomes for Black and Latino populations in terms of their contraction of, of COVID and death, Due to COVID, we started advocating and, and trying to uh, implore our government to start doing the same. And luckily, I think uh, we've decided to start collecting race-based data in Ontario anyway. Finally. In terms of COVID. <laughs> it's like um, shocking that it wasn't collected. <laughs> but one of the things we have to do is push for that to be an ongoing research aspect of our, our healthcare system beyond COVID and also looking at it nationally because COVID-19 is only showing us the disparities in, in health outcomes that we already know about. Mm -hmm. uh, COVID is only highlighting it more, more, uh, more visibly. So can I ask you to, to really break it down for the listener? You mentioned higher rates of HIV, cancer, more, higher mortality among um, Black women in North America or in Canada specifically. So what does stigma do? How does it operate? What does it look like that contributes to these poor health outcomes? So like, walk us through what does stigma look like in order to have these terrible um, health effects? I would, I would walk you through it in, in this way. If I was to look at, I'll use Black women since that's the population mm -hmm. I'm most familiar with. If I look at black women and 
their ability to access health services in a Canadian context. We're taught to believe that you wake up one day, you don't feel well, and you take this very straight path to a health Mm -hmm. service provider. That is not the case. So as a Black woman, I, I wake up and first and foremost, race, culture, ethnicity, all of those things are going to determine what I perceive as good health or how I perceive mm-hmm. myself to be well or not well. And it has a, a huge impact on our understanding of illness and, and wellness. Once I perceive myself as someone who is not well and I need to leave my home, stigma will determine whether and when I leave my home to seek outside assistance. Do I want people to know about the issue that I'm dealing with? Do I feel comfortable? Do I feel safe? All of those things start to factor in how long it takes me to leave my home to to seek assistance. When I decide to leave my home, stigma is going to determine who I go to first, mm-hmm. right? Am I going to go straight to a healthcare provider? Do I trust them? Have I had good experiences with them in the past? Have I experienced racism, for example, in the healthcare system? It's going to determine where I go first. And first, I might go to a close friend. I might go to a family member long before I go to the healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. So where is the healthcare provider? Is it anywhere near you? you Nowhere near. Nowhere (laughs) near. Right. Stigma is making sure that that healthcare provider is very far away from Mm -hmm. me accessing those services quickly and in a timely manner. Depending on how that interaction goes with the individual I choose to go to first, stigma might determine whether I go back home or if I continue on the path to getting to healthcare services. Um, You know, when we look at access to the services, once we kick into issues of race and racism and particularly anti-Black racism, it's going to determine how far that service is from where I live, Mm -hmm. the neighborhoods that I live in. If we look at neighborhoods in Toronto, for example, uh, that are highly racialized, they have the least amount of health care services. So I have to travel far to get to the service that I actually need. Then I'm going to deal with, do I have the, the economic means to get there? How am I going to travel there? Do I have the resources to get there? And when I finally get to that healthcare service, how am I treated when mm. I get there? So is this going to be a warm, welcoming experience when I arrive for intake? Or is this going to be something where, again, I experience forms of racism? Uh, you know, I work a lot, obviously, and I'm a member of the LGBT community. And some of the experiences that we are having when we try to access services as members of the LGBT community. But all of those things, those identities where we're further marginalized, often the interaction when we first arrive at the healthcare service will determine how the rest of that interaction is going to go. And I mean, I can go on and on and on, but you can see that every step of the way, issues of stigma, marginalization, racism, homophobia, we can get into ability, disability, all of those things impact how long it actually takes for me to access healthcare services. Absolutely. And that's just accessing them. And that's just accessing whether or not they're competent. There's, I know, you know, I'm just saying this also for the listener, there's evidence that Black people's pain is underestimated. There's evidence that Black people are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia versus bipolar disorder with the exact same symptoms as white people. There's, from our own research together, evidence that women uh, with HIV who are from sub-Saharan Africa are 
treated as less intelligent by their doctors. So just all the work to get to the health facility and then to be mistreated or not receive the proper care and diagnosis is a really huge issue. Absolutely. Uh, A study that I did, it's quite old. It's 2005, but it still stands. We looked at the experiences of racism that young racialized women experience in the healthcare system in the Canadian context. And over 60% of them had experienced racism at a very young age. And because of that racism that they experienced, coupled with ageism, they didn't continue accessing healthcare until they absolutely had to. And so what we're finding is that when you have these early negative experiences in the healthcare system, what it does is take you out of that system. What we're seeing, particularly with Black women, is that they're showing up for healthcare in their 30s, late 20s, 30s, without any previous healthcare access when the chronic illness is absolutely in full swing. So when the diabetes is already there, right, when the (laughs) HIV is already present, um, they're showing up late to care. Uh, You know, the cancer has already become a a major issue. So what we're finding is that stigma is creating a situation where prevention is not part of the healthcare Mm. in, in many racialized populations. It's too late even for the prevention That's right. because we've pushed people away from the system of health prevention because it's so un, either unwelcoming or discriminatory and that people are, are actually not even getting the benefits of prevention or early care and treatment. That's right. That's right. <sighs> Natisha, so this leads to my next question. Because I feel quite depressed right now about this. (laughs) What can we do about this? What are the solutions you have for us? Well, you know, some of the things that I've been advocating for, first and foremost, I spend a lot of time educating new healthcare providers because I think that's, that's the key. I always have to think about the future. And one of the ways that we can do that or have a future forward thinking plan is to start working upstream with students before Mm. they're coming out of these these health professions. So looking at issues of health equity, how do we embed that in the education system? Uh, How do we provide opportunities? For example, at Women's Health and Women's Hands, we provide enormous amount of student placement opportunities and residencies so that people have an opportunity to actually work with populations that are racialized. You know, some of the best advice I was given was during a training that I did on uh, trans health. And the, the trainer said, don't let the first time you experience working with a trans client be on, on your, your exam table or in your mm. office. You need to be out in these communities, highly visible and highly active and showing yourself to be an ally long mm. before that person shows up in your office so that you actually know who you're providing services for. Mm. And some of the work that, that I do is to really help people understand what the issues are and what the root causes of the issues that you're seeing in, in, your, in your practice uh, as a healthcare provider. So that's number one, that's key. Number two, is training healthcare providers to be leaders in the field. I, I think we spend a lot of time saying that we need healthcare providers from the communities that people are coming from. We also need leaders. We need leadership. <laughs> we need decision makers. We need people who are at policy tables. We need people 
who are making decisions about the healthcare needs of the entire population and ensuring that that includes racialized communities as well. I also think that I've, I've had the privilege of being at Women's Health and Women's Hands Community Health Center for 21 years, mm. and I very recently retired. But creating spaces where racialized women feel comfortable and believed and heard has been also a priority of mine. So that you're not only seeing people who look like you providing services, but they are actually people who care about mm -hmm. your well-being. And within that, I also include researchers because I'm trying to also influence researchers to care about the outcomes and well-being of racialized populations, not just count numbers, mm. right? Not just find, you know, the reasons why things happen. How do I use this research to actually influence the survival and well-being of racialized communities? Because until we get to that place where I care about your survival as a human, mm. nothing, nothing actually matters. Nothing actually will matter. It's when we can get to a place where I can see people as worthy of living in this world that I'm actually going to start making change. And I mean, that's the, I love this show in terms of looking at stigma <laughs> because it's not just about what is the stigma that we're experiencing, it's how can I eliminate that stigma and how do I actually move past the stigma to see the person that I'm working I'm working with or the communities that I'm, I'm working with. I'm like so glad that you talked about the need for people to be invested in one another's survival. I'm writing this book right now as part of my sabbatical and it's on challenging the idea that people are hard to reach. And the way that I'm doing it is I'm, I'm doing conversations with people from uh, five different research projects and then looking at kind of philosophies almost of how to work with people. So for example, one chapter is on critical hopefulness, one's on love and solidarity, uh, one's on reciprocity, one's on cultural humility, for example. But instead of writing a case study about a group of people or a project, I'm having a conversation with somebody about it. And at the end of each chapter, I've asked people, so what are your recommendations for researchers? Because the book is, how about researchers are the people that need to change? People are not hard to reach. We are hard to reach as researchers. Or we have people who have no reason to reach us. Mm -hmm. Like we have to make people want to reach us. <laughs> you know, like if we don't have a connection with them, if we don't have, we're not an ally, we don't know, we don't know the community, we're not part of the community. And what's so interesting and kind of sad, but like I've just been really struck by is that every single interview when I ask, so what are your recommendations for researchers? They say the same exact thing. Treat people like they're humans. Treat people like they're just like you. They have hopes and dreams and lives and loves, and they want the same thing out of life as you. They're not just a number. They're not just a participant ID. And I was like, from Eswatini to Jamaica to Toronto, all of the collaborators have said that. And, and I just thought, wow, we're, we're at a place in 2020 when we're not treating people we work with and we're supposed to be working for as humans just like us. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting comment. I think one of the things we have to... Um understand as researchers. And, you know, I, I, I spent 
you know, 32 years in practice in community. I think before actually really embarking on research in the, in the true academic sense. And one of the things that I, I think is really important for us to understand is that how you represent people in your research is how they're going to be treated. Mm. And so you, have to, you have to be very you have to be very respectful about how you represent people in, in your research. And I think I, I would implore researchers to move away from focusing on your objectives and your goals. It's more important to understand what your intent is going mm. into the research process. We spend a lot of time working through ethics and, you know, what is the goal of the research? What are the objectives? What are the outcomes? But we don't actually ever have to sit down and think about the intent and Mm-hmm. articulate the intent. Who, what is your intent as a researcher for this community? And for me, that's more important that your research participants understand what your intent is. And also the longevity. How long are you going to commit to doing this work and work with this, this group of people? Is this lifetime? Is this a one-off? Is this when the money runs out? You know, all those things are part of the, the intent. And, you know, my doctoral dissertation, I went into it you know, working with African refugees in in Canada, thinking I'm just going to do 30 interviews and off I go and I'll finish a PhD. What ended up happening is the 40 people that I, I most intensely worked with, I actually carried them through that refugee process. It took years, actually. Mm. It wasn't just an interview about, you know, how are you doing now in this refugee process? People realized, hold on a second, you're a social worker by training. I need help with this. I need housing. I mm. need support writing my, my personal statement. I, I need to find a lawyer. I need all of these other things. What are you going to do to assist us in, in this process? And it was a very, you know, some of these people, I'm still engaged with so many years later but you know I think I didn't walk in understanding what my intent was but I left that process understanding that that was probably the more important thing that I was seen as a trustworthy person because my intent was the survival of these queer refugees in this Canadian context so you know those are the those are the things that I think we have to retrain ourselves as researchers, but also the next generation of researchers. I think we have to understand what our importance is in in the lives of of people and ensuring that marginalized communities, stigmatized communities are going to survive and not just survive, but thrive in this context that that we're living in now. That is so powerful. And in the fact that we in some ways, I think, you know, we're both from social work backgrounds, but our work, whatever it is, if it's research, if it's practice, should be with the the objective of improving people's lives in the way that they want it improved. So in your case, you know, not just studying people in the refugee process, but using your knowledge and your skills when needed to help them navigate that process. Um, What I found interesting is since doing the work with LGBTQ folks in Jamaica, I've been asked to be a expert witness for several people seeking asylum in the U S from Jamaica using the research that we did in Jamaica. So then I feel like, wow, this research is, is a tool that can be used to create changes in people's lives that they want. Not, not changes that I think should happen, but changes that people 
are wanting for their own life and their own survival. Absolutely. And, you know, you can even take it a step further and influence policy as well in terms of, you know, the immigration policies and how, you know, they're not often fair in terms of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the LGBTQ community. And, you know, Canada might be a little bit ahead of the U.S. in, in this area, but it's taken a lot of advocacy to understand the importance of how our laws and how particularly immigration laws are disadvantaging particular groups of people. And the U.S. is, is definitely one, especially now, where their immigration laws are not necessarily protecting the most, most vulnerable uh, when it comes to issues of, of, of sexual orientation and gender identity. So, you know, it's not just about studying their experience. It's how am I going to use this research to actually influence change at a governmental level, mm-hmm. uh, at an international level. Your work is is beyond just North American. It's looking at global impacts. You know, how are we influencing um, UN treaties and things that impact the global aspects of, of looking at anti-sodomy laws, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could go on and on about your work in that area. We, we intersect quite a bit there. But... I think researchers have to think beyond often their own little bubble and how is my work going to have a global impact because I'm not just concerned about the people that I can immediately see and touch. I have to think about people on a very global scale because you know the world is, is very small. It's much, much bigger than the world I arrived in <laughs> uh, when I landed in Grand Falls, Newfoundland, in a, a very small logging town. <laughs> I need to go visit this place. <laughs> you absolutely do, and I'm sure they all remember us. Uh, <laughs> we made quite an impact. But, you know, we, we, you have to be able to think beyond maybe the small universe that you, you operate in and that your work will impact many, 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 many lives. And therefore, it has to be pristine it has to have good intent, and it has to have the best outcomes for as many people possible. That is so inspiring and so powerful. I just want to say one thing um, about your earlier comment, which is about how representation matters. That's something I learned actually working with your team at Women's Health, Women's Hands, on the women and HIV uh, community-based research project. I remember when we were working on the interview guide, we, we ended up doing, I can't remember how many focus groups across Ontario. It was five cities between 18 and 20 focus groups of women with HIV. But one of the earlier iterations of the interview guide only asked about stigma and it didn't ask about how are people managing? How are they coping? How are they thriving? So that like strengths perspective. And I know that often happens in LGBTQ research and it's probably even more pronounced in working with the queer African refugees is all the hardship, all the sadness, all the sorrow, all the suffering. You're like, yes. And at the same time, there's strength and resilience and community and resistance and solidarity. So when we represent people, um, it's really important, I think, as you mentioned, that how we represent people is how often people will get treated. Absolutely. 
absolutely. I always tell my students the story of my, my the first uh, refugee client that I, I had as a young social worker. And she was a Somali mom who had actually fled Somalia with her five children and she walked to Kenya after her husband had been uh, killed in war. She survived refugee camps in Kenya and was able to get to England with her five children. Um, she tried to claim asylum in England, was unsuccessful and was able to get her five children to Canada where she was able to uh, successfully claim refugee status. And, uh, you know, she made it from Rexdale to my office downtown Toronto. And I'm supposed to look at this woman as this poor refugee needing my assistance. <laughs> and I was looking at her thinking, there's no, I would not have survived that and kept my family intact. Mm. Right. This is probably the most resilient, strong woman I have ever met. Um, and we're supposed to perceive, you know, these women as these poor and she's Muslim in hijab, right? These poor, subjugated, uh, oppressed women. And we have to change those narratives. Mm -hmm. we, we have to replace those narratives with the reality of you know, people who are able to survive in the most egregious situations. And I, I think, uh, you know, your work on stigma is very much pushing us to think about the narratives that we create about people and their circumstances and how often we allow the circumstance to define the person as opposed to how the person overcame the circumstance should be the definition of who they are. Absolutely. And how if we think about our work, whether it's research or practice or both as, as something that's reciprocal, that would also mean that I can be transformed by my interaction with that woman and learning from her skills and her wisdom. And it's not just that she's coming from my magic wand of solutions, you know, how it says like an actual mutual learning or at some point it's often us learning more than we can impart, you know, oh, because yeah. people have been through so much. Absolutely. Like that, that woman's the expert in her life. You're oh. not the expert. Right? And, you know, we totally. reframe that as, as researchers. We are not experts in anybody else's life. They are the experts. Absolutely. We, right? we interpret, um, you know, we, we are doing our best to represent people in, in a, a particular way, but we, we are no more an expert in, you know, we barely are experts in our own lives um, <laughs> as I struggle with my, my quarantine and realizing how, how little um, control I actually do have over my life. But, you know, there's, there's no way I should be walking around talking about my, my level of expertise in, in anybody else's is life. And, um, you know, when you allow people to be experts in their lives, you allow people to make decisions about how that life will play out and how that life will be narrated. And I think um, we, we have to do more of that work as researchers, allowing those alternative narrations, the narrations that challenge oppression and that challenge 
marginalization, that challenge stigma to, to be front and center. Well, that is so perfect. And I'm, we're nearing the end before we get to the wild card questions I have for you. Oh, wild I love card that. Questions. And uh, pardon? Wild card questions. Okay. This is like Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah. They're like Jeopardy just for us to get to know you. But I really, I think that what you just said is about really listening for the narratives that people have and want to create. It's just, such a beautiful way um, to end the the conversation that we just had on stigma. So thank you. The next questions are fun. I mean, these were all fun questions, but <laughs> these ones are just wildcard questions so we can get to know the real you, or at least the quarantine you, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know if it's a real you or not, but what are you binging on Netflix right now? Oh my goodness. Okay. So I just finished the Eddie. The Eddie. Which, I never heard of that. Oh, it's amazing. It's, um, it's set in Paris. It's a, a African American jazz musician who flees to Paris, uh, to open this club with his friend called the Eddie. Uh, so I just binged on that and okay. My new favorite show is upload. Upload. Yes. Upload. So, upload you haven't seen that one. No. So Upload is a series on Amazon and it's about uh, the future. And basically you can choose instead of dying the traditional way, you can, before you die, be uploaded into this virtual world. And it's all about, um, you know, consumerism and depending on how much money you have, you might go to the fancy hotel and live out your life, or you might be in a 2G world where oh you, know, and you you basically have a bed and, and, <laughs> and some sheets in this white room. It's hilarious. And, it, you know, it's all about race, class, gender, oh. but in this really hilarious, hilarious way. Okay. I'm... I'm like asking all the guests for recommendations. I don't know if you, okay, I'll give you my favorite recommendation. Have you um, watched Sex Education? Oh, I haven't watched that. That's on my list. Oh, it's really good. Is and it po- good? Yeah, you've probably seen Pose. Oh, yeah. Oh, my uh, gosh. Yeah, I'm trying show. to figure out how to get season two if anybody wants to send me a link. Um, okay, so my next wild card question is if you could go for dinner anywhere in the world, um, post-COVID or pre-COVID um, with anybody, um, where would you go? Oh, wow. Who would you I, I would say if I could go to dinner anywhere in the world post-COVID, it will be in Sierra Leone, where I'm from originally. Mm-hmm. And I would be eating jollof rice and chicken <laughs> on the <laughs> beach. <laughs> nice. <laughs> with my family. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I want to... Yeah have more conversations with you about Sierra Leone. Um, We're going to get is, there. It's a really nice visual. <laughs> and like, yes, when you are doing that, you need to send me a selfie. Um, and my final last wildcard question before I let you go. And you've mentioned advice you've received along the way. Do you have any helpful advice you want to share with the listeners? I would say this is for younger listeners. If you know what you want to do, you, you need to do it. But you, you need mentors and people to advise you along the way. And I always tell people that if someone tells you no, 
uh, that you can't do this thing you want to do, you're talking to the wrong person. Find mm-hmm. somebody else. I, I've heard so many no's in my lifetime about what I can achieve and do, especially academically. And I would have come to realize is that that person actually is not the right person to be speaking to because you want to be speaking to people who are going to help you reach your goals and, and dreams. That's beautiful. So find the people that will lift you up. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that no should not deter you. It just means go find somebody else. That'll help you find a way forward. That's so good. You are so awesome, Noticia. I'm really grateful. I know you have so much happening and taking this time today um, to be a guest on this podcast is so wonderful. So everybody, uh, Dr. Noticia Masakoy, a fantastic LGBTQ global health, black woman expert, scholar, consultant, activist. I'll put links to your, your work and thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carmen. It's, it's been a pleasure uh, working with you for, for so many years. And I have learned an enormous amount about ethical research and being an ethical researcher through, through your work. And what, as I said earlier, what a true ally looks like from a research perspective. So this is a new format that we're working together <laughs> in. And I look forward to many more years of collaboration. Fantastic. And I, I hope that you'll come and be a guest in the future. I know this is your first podcast. It is. <laughs> this is also, you know, I've, I've just launched this. This is, you know, a new uh, experience, but it's been, it's just been such a, a pleasure getting to have, especially when we're all quarantined, these kind of nice conversations that meander yeah. around history and stigma and, you know, current issues. So Thank you again, and um, I look forward to, to talking with you soon. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Thank you.